BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, April 24th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Privlo. Can't get a mortgage because you're self-employed, make an uneven income, or have an old credit blemish? Privlo, a private mortgage lender, can help where traditional mortgage lenders can't. Privlo is a new kind of mortgage lender that takes a holistic view of your finances to see if you qualify for a mortgage. To apply, go to privlo.com slash podcast and fill out a simple online form. You'll have a decision in hours. That's privlo.com slash podcast. Privlo. Get home. NMLS ID 1076413. So I'm going to ask you a few personal questions today. Let's do it. How do you feel about your body? Not great, to be perfectly honest. You know the freshman 15? Uh Uh-huh. That was more like the freshman 45. And I think it's persisted for a long time since then. uh Uh-huh. I don't. And since having a kid, uh, I say that as if I birthed him. But uh, (laughs) since having a kid, like I just don't have as much time as I want to exercise and just stay as active. So it's interesting that you said that, that you said that you don't have as much time and exercise and stay active, but you didn't say anything about dieting. Oh, so have I, you tried dieting? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've gone through a couple iterations where I tried to change certain habits. I wasn't like a rigorous diet. Like I didn't do the master cleanse with like, you know, hot sauce and and lemon juice or whatever that is. But I would do stuff where I would cut out certain foods and I would only eat um, you know, more protein and more leafy greens and stuff like that. That was diet-esque. And that I totally didn't stick didn't to work. it. Didn't work. Well, maybe it's because I'm somewhat employed in the fashion world. And I see, you know, body image as something that is seems to be pervasive all the time in my own life. And I often see a lot of trends among people who are in fashion to take on the next diet, right? So currently, there's a big trend of uh, people drinking hot water with lemon first thing in the morning. That seems to be something that you should start your day with. And That's just like a step away from just tea, right? <laughs> yes. It's tea <laughs> without the tea, essentially. Um, and I never quite understood, you know, 
where this kind of sense that, you know, if I just completely starve myself for a certain period of time, um, that will lead to lasting changes in weight, although that seems to be the belief for a lot of people. And also, when I was a graduate student, I was in a program called Cognitive Neuroscience, and I was very naive. I used to think that us cognitive neuroscientists in the psychology department, we were the ones doing the real science. You know, it just sounds cool, right? Cognitive neuroscience. And like, God forbid you should study something like vision, you know, because those guys were just programming geeks. (laughs) (laughs) Or even worse, something nebulous and, you know, just kind of, you know, just not sciencey like health psychology or social psychology. And now, of course, those graduate students who are studying things like health psychology are doing really important work. And some of them have become really successful and have made really lasting changes in society. And one of the professors at UCLA, whose work I shamefully admit I ignored most of the time, was Dr. Tracy Mann. She's now a psychology professor at the University of Minnesota, and she's an expert on the psychology of eating, dieting, and self-control. And a few weeks ago, a friend of mine, a colleague from UCLA, sent me her book called Secrets from the Eating Lab, The Science of Weight Loss, The Myth of Willpower, and Why You Should Never Diet Again. And I picked it up because, you know, I liked Tracy And I completely changed my view of health psychology work. The book is really interesting. It documents a lot of really great science about the psychology of eating. And I actually think it's really important. So everybody should read this book. So first off, she starts off the book by saying, hands down, diets don't work. And she doesn't mean... Wait, wait, wait. Just all diets don't work? Yeah. Not like the cabbage diet or the you know water with lemon diet or even the paleo diet. Or she says, no diet works. And so, of course, uh, this is a, a challenging comment to say, especially by someone who I know is as rigorous a scientist as Tracy Mann. And so I asked her whether she can back up that claim. And here's what she said. There are 75 years worth of diet studies, and the results are not confusing. They're not. It's not like it's hard to say which way they're pointing. The results are clear. And the results are this. With pretty much any diet, even those weird ones you just mentioned, you can lose weight. You can lose weight in the short run. You can lose about 5 to 10% of your starting weight in about six months. But that weight comes back. And it comes back reliably and predictably for the majority of people. So what she means is that diets don't work in the long term, that if you're really interested in taking off those, you know, freshman 45, dieting is not the way to do it. I'm kind of shocked by this because there's a preponderance uh, throughout our day of advertisements of this diet and this diet and billboards prescribing this. And every couple of years, there's a new fad. Uh, And then some of these diets, you know, we might not consider like full diets, but I think she's lumping them together about like things like Atkins where you're eating more protein and more um, uh, vegetables. I I can't believe it just doesn't work after six months. It's amazing, but the data are compelling. And I think most of us think that if we have a little bit of weight to lose or a significant weight to lose, that eventually we can go on a diet and it'll work. And what's really fascinating about Tracy's work and her, you know, review of the massive literature on the topic is that simply isn't true. That's depressing a little bit. (laughs) 
Well, there is an upside to it all, which we'll get to in the interview. But first, I wanted to ask you whether there was something in the news that caught your eye. Absolutely. Uh, So you are a young woman. Do you use any sort of like face creams and beauty products of some sort? Well, first off, thank you for calling me a young woman. (laughs) I feel like I'm encroaching upon middle age. Evidence-based show, Indre. (laughs) Evidence-based show. Um, But yes, I do use, in fact, anti-aging cream on my face uh, every day, twice. So what if I told you there is a set of researchers in England, medieval researchers, that found an old recipe book for an amazing remedy? What would you think, wow, let me like pick this thing up and try it now because old remedies that could that could really do me some good. See, I would not because I think if it was a remedy that worked a thousand years ago, we'd probably still have it. <laughs> so generally speaking, I agree with you because if it what if it works, it works. But some researchers at the University of Nottingham in England went back and found this old manuscript that had uh, a listing of a of a poultice, if you will, like sort of a an ointment that apparently indicated some uh, bacterial resistant properties in how it worked. So they set out to recreate it. And this isn't easy because there isn't like a recipe with like ratios really well defined from a manuscript that, you know, came out in the 10th century. So they had to do a little bit of work and came up with this recipe and even follow the instructions on how to cook it, the kind of vessel they were supposed to cook it in, which is labeled a brazen vessel. And then they tried to use this poultice on MRSA, which is this incredibly uh, resilient bacteria uh, that leads to staph infections. That is a huge concern for the uh, antibiotic industry who is looking at a, 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 a microbe that might just get out of hand. And it was effective. They found a thousand-year-old uh, remedy that might work as a new antibiotic. So... It makes me wonder, though, if that would be the one case in which maybe a thousand-year-old cure would work because the microbes now are different and they haven't been exposed for a thousand years, perhaps, to that particular remedy. So is it possible that the bacteria have actually evolved and changed in the last thousand years so that now it works, but maybe it didn't work at the time? So get ready for this. They don't know. (laughs) So this is what's fascinating about it is they... Um, assembled this thing and cooked it in this per- a certain way and tried it out and it was effective. And then they separated out all the ingredients and tried them individually and it didn't work. And, th- and so they have no idea what's happening here. And so they suspect there is some combinatorial effect and that the cooking within this uh, certain type of, of pot, they actually inserted brass strips in this case, actually induces some sort of antibiotic resistant properties within this this sort of remedy. But what's uh, amazing is that, uh, and I think this is a real story here, is that it was about 90% effective of eliminating the MRSA bacteria in a injected mice, a subcutaneous sample. But the FDA, our regulatory body, which would approve a new antibiotic, needs 99.99% effectiveness. So there's no way in this country, in this current state, that this could ever come to the market because it would never pass regulatory hurdles for its use, even though there's a dramatic need for this. And it really opens up a discussion about here's a plant-based pathway for an antibiotic-resistant remedy um, that might be really needed 
Uh, but we don't have an effective pathway for it to clear just bureaucratic hurdles. But is it just bureaucratic hurdles or are they concerned that if you kill off 90%, the 10% are going to be even more virulent and even more difficult to kill down the line with something else? There is definitely that concern. And I don't want to put the cart before the horse. Like there's still more testing to be done. But let's say they get past that hurdle, which is a, a real possibility here. We're still stuck in this situation where there's no easy pathway for success. Well, speaking of not knowing, um, something caught my eye this week, too, that also highlights what it is that we don't know uh, just as much as what it is that we do know. And this, uh, does, do you ever hear people talk about, you know, putting a little nine volt battery on their skull and you know, generating a current and that making them more creative? Who are you hanging out with? <laughs> the, what kind of uh, happy hours do you go to in the evening? A nine volt battery? <laughs> so there is a increasing trend in applying a technique called transcranial direct current stimulation uh, to by the general layperson. In fact, if you Google it, you can find all kinds of videos of do it yourself transcranial direct current stimulation stimulators. Um, you know, supposedly you can build yourself and, you know, put it on your scalp and it'll make you more creative. It'll help you solve math problems and so forth. And of course, every time someone asks me about this, you know, in general, I kind of roll my eyes and say, no, please don't do that. You're just going to burn your scalp and it's probably not going to do anything. Um, but there is a growing body of work in neuroscience that is testing the effects of this kind of stimulation. Um, and recently, there's there's a great article in The New Yorker by Elif Baruman uh, called Electrified that really does a good job of talking about what we do know and what we don't know about TDCS, as it's called in short. How can this be safe? Just pumping electricity directly into your brain. That's what a direct current is. Well, it's a very low electric current, so up to about 2 milliamps. And of course, it's not going directly to the brain. It has to pass your skin and your scalp and so forth. Um, and there isn't a lot of evidence that it is really kind of harmful in the long term, although we still don't know that if you know you did this every day that you wouldn't have some kind of long-term effects. Um, but there have been a number of studies that show actual some actually some benefits. So... Um, um, probably the most common results are, are improved learning um, or vigilance, um, tests of intelligence, working memory, and so forth. Um, but also, it seems to relieve chronic pain and the symptoms of depression or fibromyalgia, um, even Parkinson's disease and schizophrenia. But most of the studies are very small, and the data are heterogeneous. And almost for any study that you see a positive effect, you can find a study that showed a null effect or even a completely opposite effect. So we still don't understand exactly what the effects uh, are and how it works more precisely. So we actually don't know why what it actually does. So what we know is that because the current is too low to actually cause neurons to fire, right, they're not going to send action potentials on the basis of this current. Um, we know that that's not how it works. But it's possible that it changes kind of the, you know, electrical potential of the membranes of these cells. So it kind of makes them more or less likely to fire um, a little bit like some kinds of learning do, you know, in terms of potentiating um, the the sort of receptors in your on your neurons. So in other words, it doesn't create new neural activity, but it can ramp up or reduce activity that's going to be there 
anyway. Um, so that's why the author actually reports that when he was, for example, trying to um, perform some logic puzzles with TCDS, uh, he actually felt that the task was easier um, when he was when the stimulation was applied, although interestingly enough, it did not actually affect how accurate he was. He did not show an improvement in terms of his actual cognitive function. I want to talk more about the people that are subjecting themselves to this. <laughs> Is this only in humans, or are they trying this out in animal models? Um, as well? They have they have tried it out in animal models as well in in rodents and in primates, um, and they see you know some the, again the, it's still relatively heterogeneous, but they do see some effects. Um, but I think it's because people are really excited about this idea that they can like build something at home and like put it on their head, and it can lead to this. I mean, if we're willing to take a pill to Im- improve intelligence. You know, would you would you be willing to put a battery next to your scalp? It's a it's a sad statement that I'm more willing to take the pill than I am to take the uh, to strap the nine volt battery hat to my head. But it does seem a little. It runs very countercurrent, pardon the pun, to what I expect to uh, to do. It, it. I wonder, are these people desperate or are they excited? I think people are excited. So the people that have approached me are are often um, musicians come to me and say, if they're going to improvise on an instrument, you know, they want to see what it would be like to use uh, TDCS. But these are the same people who come to me and say they want to experiment with beta blockers and reduce performance anxiety. So, you know, I think I think people who especially make a living in the creative arts, you know, are willing to experiment. We know that historically that, you know, people are willing to take all kinds of drugs to enhance creativity and so forth. But I want to tell you about one more study that is kind of interesting that that Elif highlights in his article. And this is actually done by the person that he profiles, um, a, a guy named Clark. And so essentially, what they did, it was funded by the Department of Defense, um, or DARPA, I should say. And they used, they essentially showed their army recruits, um, a video that was designed to sort of help them, um, become more familiar with the kinds of stimuli that they would see on a desert road. So like a derelict apartment block or like an abandoned fruit market, um, landscapes that are typical in the Middle East. And then within that video game, they would kind of conceal threats. So there could be an explosive device behind an oil drum or the shadow of a sniper's rifle over a rooftop, etc. that these recruits are, are trained to detect. And usually you can only identify them with training and with lots of practice. And what they showed in this particular study is that um, when they looked at the parts of the brain in the fMRI scanner that were active during learning of this particular task, and then they targeted those areas using TDCS, um, they actually found that the subjects who received the stimulation learned the same material twice as quickly as subjects who received what we called sham TDCS, which is just a negligibly low dose of stimulation. Um, and in fact, that particular study was replicated by other labs. And so it's kind of like the punchline is that the Air Force found that this kind of stimulation made airmen twice as accurate at identifying tanks and missile launchers in radar scans. Like, that's kind of amazing. That's kind of an important thing, too. That level of uh, of detection, I assume it's above a statistical um, standard so that this is, you know, significant in some way. Of course. I mean, you're going to compare them to the control group. But the question still remains of whether or not you actually have what is a vigilance effect or a placebo effect, right? So um, the same thing was found in, in a much less dramatic fashion by what we call the Mozart effect, right? Where, you know, if you need to study something and you listen to Mozart versus, you know, Philip Glass or nothing at all, um, that you can show a slight increase in performance in some spatial reasoning tasks, etc. that lasts like 15 minutes called 
Mozart effect. And, you know, it turns out that what seems to underlie that kind of Mozart effect is really just an increase in arousal or, or vigilance. And so the question here remains whether, you know, there's something about the stimulation that just kind of makes you a little bit more alert. I'm not super excited about keeping it strapped to my head for an extended period of time to get these effects. <laughs> well, we're in our infancy in terms of understanding how, what its potential is and how it works. But it is kind of a, a really interesting um, direction that neuroscience is going. So with that, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Tracy Mann. This episode is sponsored by Privlo. Are you self-employed, an entrepreneur, or business owner who's successful, has good credit, but can't get a mortgage through a traditional lender? Privlo, a new kind of mortgage lender, can help. They take a holistic view of your finances to see if you qualify for a mortgage. Even if you have a bankruptcy or foreclosure over a year old, or a short sale over six months ago, you still may be eligible. Same thing if you've avoided taking on debt and have a clean but limited credit history. Privlo knows the gig economy is the new normal and built a company that specializes in home loans tailored to fit real lives. To apply, go to privlo.com slash podcast and fill out a simple online form. You'll have a decision in hours. That's privlo.com slash podcast or call 855-477-4850. Privlo, get home. And now, in an amazing demonstration of compliance, that means Privlo's on the up and up, a few words from the government. Privlo Inc. is a licensed equal housing mortgage lender, NMLS ID 1076413, licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act, Illinois Residential Mortgage Licensee, Washington CL 1076413, Texas License 107679. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Tracy Mann. Hi. It's great to have you on the show. And in full disclosure to our listeners, when I was a graduate student at UCLA, Tracy was also on faculty, and her husband was one of my thesis advisors. So there is my conflict of interest laid right out on the table up front. That's going to change everything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I doubt it. But I wanted to you know, be honest right up front. Sure. So Tracy, let's start by talking about what it is that got you interested in studying how people eat. Oh, wow. Let's go back 20-some years. Um, in grad school, I was actually studying eating disorder prevention. And in preparing for my dissertation defense, I felt like I had to read really broadly about like anything they could ask me whatsoever. So I started looking at the obesity literature, which I had never thought about before. And I was just fascinated by it. And ever since sort of, and I wanted to only read that literature and not study the other topics I was supposed to know about for that defense. So I sort of noticed that and realized that I had to someday I was going to veer into that into that area. So what was it about those studies that interested you? Just nothing about that world was what I expected it to be. You know, I thought like everybody else did that it was so clear cut that obesity was horrible, that you could just go on a diet and that would fix it. Um, just everything I read was not what I kind of had heard as a regular person. I guess everything in the scientific literature wasn't what I expected. 
So let's start talking about diets then. And, you know, you make a pretty bold statement at the beginning of your book that diets don't work. And you don't just mean, you know, the juice cleanse or, you know, eat macadamia (laughs) nuts for 40 days, those kinds of diets. You know, I think most of us are probably a little skeptical. But, you know, you claim that no diets work. So, you know, what's what's the science behind that? I mean, of all the sort of bold seeming claims I make in this book, this is the easiest to back up. I mean, it's crazy. There are 75 years worth of diet studies and the results are not confusing. They're not it's not like it's hard to say which way they're pointing. The results are clear and the results are this. With pretty much any diet, even those weird ones you just mentioned, you can lose weight. You can lose weight in the short run, you can lose about 5 to 10% of your starting weight in about six months, but that weight comes back. And it comes back reliably and predictably for the majority of people. So that's why I say diets don't work. Right. So what you mean by that is that ultimately in the long run, it's not a cure for, you know, a person's wanting wanting to lose the weight, that 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 either they have to continue to diet or they have to get on another diet that ultimately the weight comes back. So if you consider it, you know, if if, if you likened that desire for weight loss to another disease, you would say the disease might be in remission for six months, but it's going to come right back. It comes right back. Yeah, it does for nearly everyone. And you also made a really interesting, uh, you had a really interesting quote from um, one of the individuals who works for, I believe it was Weight Watchers, um, talking about repeat customers and how this is actually built into their, you know, model of their business. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, you can't possibly have a successful diet company if diets work. You would lose all your customers pretty quickly. Um, And there's a lot of successful diet companies out there. So that should already be a little hint for people. Um, The quote you're talking about came from the former chief financial officer of Weight Watchers. And he said their customers come from failed dieters, people who have done Weight Watchers, gained it back, and now are back. Their business plan even says that they have a great tradition of repeat customers and that most of their customers sign up for four separate cycles on average of their program. Four cycles. So it's mo- a lot. <laughs> in, it is. In most businesses, you would see that as a kind of marker of success, that the businesses, you know, the customers are happy, they're coming back. But obviously, in the case of losing weight, people do hope that this is something that they have to do once and then they're done. Yeah. Um, that obviously isn't the case. Yeah. I think there's a difference between what people mean when they say diets work and what researchers or diet company CEOs mean. So what people mean is I'm going to lose a lot of weight and it's going to stay off. Okay, And by that definition, diets don't work. People don't generally lose as much as they want. And then what they, lo- what they do lose tends to come back. Yeah, there was a really poignant study that you quote in which women were uh, on a diet and they had to uh, say whether or not they met their dream weight loss goal or, you know, their ideal weight loss goal. And the sort of the, the bottom line was whether or not they got to their disappointed weight loss goal. Tell us a little right. bit about that study. Oh, that study, it just breaks my heart every time I think about it. 
So that study, they took a bunch of women who were about to start a diet, and they asked them before doing it to tell them what would be their ideal outcome of this diet, what would be um, an outcome that they would be satisfied with. There's a few more than this, but and also an outcome that in no way could they possibly think of as satisfying. So that's their dissatisfied outcome. And then they followed them up to see how much weight they lost. And that diet, actually, the results of it were really quite good compared to most other diet studies I read. But still, when they looked at how much the women lost and compared it to um, to their goal stated at the beginning, they found that the majority of the women didn't even reach that disappointed weight that they had said. They didn't even lose as much as that. Does that make sense? It's a little bit of a weird yeah. way to explain, but yeah, it's 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 very it's a very sad outcome. Yeah, no, the, and the the chart in your book is really it's very it's very sad. You know, you see that yeah, most people don't even get to be disappointed. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes, that's right. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about you know, the biological and psychological reasons for why diets fail, you kind of separate them in your book. And let's start with the biology. So why biologically are we unable to, you know, lose weight and keep it off by eating less? Okay, I mean, if you think about it, we have evolved to survive. We have evolved to survive through famine. So when not enough food comes into your body, all these biological changes happen that are meant to keep us alive. They're meant to keep us from starving to death. And they do. They're great at that. So that's the good news. The bad news, in most people's opinion, is that uh, this biological starvation mode has the undesired effect of making it harder and harder to take more weight off and easier and easier to regain it. So um, in terms of the specific types of changes that happen, um, when you don't take in enough calories, you have neurological changes. Okay, and these changes make it so that your brain is overly responsive to tasty-looking food, so you're more likely to notice tasty-looking food. When you notice it, you're more likely to pay close attention to it, and it looks more appetizing and tempting than usual. And I should say, we don't even really need brain imaging studies to show us that, right? We all know this anyway, right? When you're hungry, you're more likely to notice food and it all looks really, really tempting. But so that's just one kind of change that you see predictably when not enough calories are coming in. But you also see hormonal changes. As you lose weight, the, the levels of the different hormones circulating in your blood change. So the hormones that help you feel full, those decrease, okay? That's not what you really want to be happening, right? And the level of hormones that make you feel hungry, they increase, also not what you want to be happening. So you get a really strong urge to eat and to eat a lot without feeling satisfied. And then there's metabolic changes, and I feel like most people know about these. When, when you're hungry, not enough uh, calories are coming in, your metabolism slows down to make the food that comes in last longer. In a sense, it's more efficient, right? It uses each calorie in the, in the most efficient way it possibly can. So the result is that you need fewer calories to run your body, 
and then you end up with more calories left over to be stored as fat. Okay, so that's also not what you want to have happen. So ultimately, someone who, say, was um, 175 pounds and they went on a diet and they got to 150 pounds, that person actually is going to struggle more to stay at 150 pounds than someone who was 150 pounds to start out with because of these changes. That's right. 150 pounds does not equal 150 pounds if you lost weight to get there. So if you lost weight to get to 150 pounds, the amount of calories that you can eat without gaining weight is lower than someone who's 150 pounds naturally. Okay, so think about how completely unfair that is, right? I mean, you're the same weight as someone, but if you eat the same number of calories as them, you're going to gain weight, and they're not. And to add insult to injury, they're going to tell you or they're going to call you a glutton or tell you you have no self-control. You know, you're going to kind of get blamed for this, even though you're not even eating more than someone who stays at that weight because that's their normal weight. And do these changes, how long do they last? I mean, is there is there kind of like if you're able to keep the weight off for, you know, six months or a year or five years, ultimately, does your body reset itself so that now you can um you know, be more equivalent to the person who was at that weight to begin with? Or is this something that is a lifelong problem? I I have found very few studies that look at that. Um, I think I even only found one that I cite in the book. And I think even a year later, um, things hadn't reset. I hear, you know, in the uh, like in women's magazines, there's like the reset your set point diet and all this that is based on no research that I've been able to locate. And I believe me, uh-huh. I, I would have found it if it were there. <laughs> yeah, you do cite a lot of studies in your book. It's really impressive the the, the breadth of research that um, you and your students have, have undertaken. Thank you. So I wanted to just touch a little bit now on this idea of, of willpower of and, and of course, the stigma associated with obesity. Um, a lot of people, you know, are, are look at people who are obese and, and even if it's subconscious, think of them as being lazy and not having self-control. I mean, there was, there was a, a whole um, kind of kerfuffle on Twitter when uh, a professor actually said that he would not, uh, that, that one of the, if, he, if a postdoc applicant came to him and was obese, he would not hire that person because clearly that person doesn't have any discipline. Yeah, I saw that quote. Yeah. So is it true that people then, uh, let's say, who haven't gone on a diet, uh, is it because they don't have enough willpower to, to stick to it? Um, what's, what's the evidence there for, for the relationship between willpower and obesity? Okay. Well, this is, I think, the most misunderstood thing. And this is the myth of willpower, really. The myth is that obese people have worse willpower than thin people. Uh, that's not true. They're probably actually using more willpower on any given day. But that's not why people differ in weight. People do differ in their willpower ability. Some people are better than others. Absolutely. But these differences don't account for much of the variation between people in their weight. So willpower, it only explains a very tiny bit of the differences between people and weight, a, an unimportant amount, tiny amount. Willpower actually matters much more for other things like school and work achievement 
Things like that, willpower explains a huge amount of the variation between people, way more, five, six, eight times more um, of the variation uh, in things like that than you see in weight. So do we know what are some of the big factors that, that can account for the variation in weight if it's not willpower? Well, let me say a little bit more about why willpower doesn't explain the differences in weight, because I don't think um, this is something people have given a lot of thought to. Um, but here, here's the, the way I think about this. You know, you have this cookie, it's on the desk, and you're trying not to eat it, right? Um, every time you look over, you have to try not to eat it all over again. So any one food is not just one act of resistance. It's not just one act of self-control. It's many, many acts of self-control. Uh, and couple that with the amount of food out there that people have to resist, and you can think about the number of minutes and hours in the day that you have to resist it. There's just too many. There's too many minutes. So for willpower to work, it would have to be unbelievably strong, really pretty much flawless to handle all that. But in fact, willpower is the opposite, at least when it comes to eating. It's the opposite. It's incredibly fragile. It is so easy to disrupt it with any kind of normal uh, daily events that, that go on. Um, it's really easy for it to be depleted by controlling something else. And, and I think this might be the most important part. A momentary lapse of willpower can destroy hours and hours of impressive restraint. So now think about eating compared to other things. So, you know, you've been resisting that cookie, you resisted it, let's say, 20 times. Let's say you eat it on the 21st time. You've shown impressive restraint, right? You succeeded 20 out of 21 times. That's A-plus restraint. But it doesn't matter. It got you nowhere. You're, it got you nowhere better than someone with D-minus restraint, right? So with eating, momentary lapses can erase previous successes. But that's not really true if you think about other areas. So so you sing opera or you used to, if I'm remembering right, God, I hope I am. <laughs> I do still, um, yep. Yep. So let me use that as an example with zero knowledge about music. But I'm assuming it takes a lot of practice, right? So when you think about willpower explaining something like that, some kind of achievement, let's say in singing, um, what what the willpower needs to do is keep you working on it, keep you focusing on it. Okay, so let's say you're working on your on a song and you're – what do you do? Sing it over and over and then you have a lapse of self-control. It's just a momentary lapse of self-control. Instead of continuing to practice singing it, you, you know, get on Facebook and start looking around. Okay, maybe you waste a couple minutes on Facebook. Okay, that doesn't nullify all of the practice you did, right? That practice is still in the bank. Okay, so lapses of self-control in most areas don't sort of nullify all that came before. Okay, but with eating, it does. So eating is just particularly unforgiving um, of lapses of self-control. And lapses of self-control are really hard to avoid with eating for all the reasons I was just saying. There are just too many opportunities and it happens too quickly. Okay, so that's why willpower is really not the key when it comes to eating. 
It's not what distinguishes the fat from the thin. So just eat the cookie first, save your willpower for things that actually matter, <laughs> like, you know, practicing your singing or whatever it does, whatever you need to do to, to be successful. Exactly. Where it's going to actually help you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's a that's a really, you know, it's, it's a different way, I think, of thinking about willpower when you when you consider that its relationship to eating is quite different from its relationship to other aspects of our lives. And I think that that's yeah. that's really true. And it's something that we don't you know, think about. Enough. Yeah. And it just really bugs me when people blame dieters willpower. You know, they say, oh, he regained the weight because he doesn't have willpower. He's weak. No, that's not why. Um, you know, the funny thing is um, willpower explains a lot of the variation between people in happiness levels. You know, you don't hear people you know, when a friend's unhappy, you don't hear people saying, oh, that's because she has no self-control, you know, but for some, and it's because people don't know this, of course, but it should be just as ridiculous to say um, that a person is fat because they have no self-control than it is to say they're unhappy. It should be more ridiculous, actually. So I, I, a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with one of the tests of self-control, especially in children, which is the marshmallow test. Yes. And, you know, I always have a really vivid image. You know, you, you put a marshmallow in front of a child and you tell them if, that if they don't eat it until you get back, they'll get two marshmallows. Um, but if they do eat it, then, you know, they're done. <laughs> and then you have to watch how long the child can resist the marshmallow. And, um, you know, I'm going to try to find some videos of, of what children do who are able to resist. I mean, look, ultimately, probably 99% of the kids eat the marshmallow, right? Am I right? <laughs> yeah. And the amount of time they give them, they give them a lot of time because they want to measure how long it takes until they eat it. So they leave them sit uh -huh. sitting there a long time until they eat it. It doesn't take that long for and, most of them. <laughs> yeah. So the kids who are successful in the sense that it takes them longer to eat it, uh, what do they do? Well, it's funny. They A lot of the kind of strategies that we should use are things that the kids there did. So in particular, kids who are most successful hid the marshmallow from view. Okay, they tried to remove the temptation. So if you think about it, we're really bad at resisting temptation, right? So our only hope is to make sure we don't ever encounter it. You can't always not encounter it. Sometimes you do encounter it. And so when you do, you need to do what these kids did, which is keep it out of sight, hide it. Or the kids didn't really do this, but it's a good strategy to is put obstacles between you and it. And so in the third part of your book, you actually give us some really great kind of regulation strategies. And um, I do want to get to those. But there's one more thing that I wanted to talk about before we get to the regulation. And that is this notion that uh, obesity is is going to kill you. Uh, and you know, you have some compelling evidence that maybe that's not the case. Yeah, I think, um, well, I should say that of everything in the book, I understand that this is the hardest sell. This is the hardest thing for people to uh, kind of believe. Okay, but I looked quite closely at the literature on obesity and health. So first of all, I focused my, so there's so much research on this. I, f I couldn't look at every single thing forever. That's a whole volume of other books. 
Um, so I focused on the relationship between obesity and mortality because I feel like, you know, that's the most important one, right? And mortality at minimum is a really good measure of health, right? If you're dead, you're <laughs> yes. not healthy. In general, it's not perfect, but it turns out it's harder to measure health than people think, especially in big, long research studies like this. So you're best off measuring health in terms of how long people live. That's sort of a easy-to-measure outcome. And so I feel like the best evidence is in terms of death. And then when you look at the um, research on obesity and death, and the person who's really combined all the studies in the most statistically sophisticated and appropriate ways is this researcher at UCSF, actually, uh, where you are, um, Catherine Flegel. And she found every study that looked at um, obesity at some time point and then followed people to see how long they lived. And what she found, and I can't describe all of it, but what she found is very clear. It's remarkable how clear it is. The um, the relative risk of death for overweight people versus what they call normal weight, which I hate to call that, but I'm, I'm going to have to um, just for ease of talking. Um, but what she finds is the relative risk of death for overweight versus normal weight is no different than one. Okay, overweight people don't have a higher risk of death than normal weight people. And, you know, she has hundred something studies that she looked at and in oh I'm gonna say these numbers wrong and I I apologize for that. They are accurate in the book. But I think in I don't know, eighty seven, ninety percent of the comparisons between overweight and normal weight, there's no difference in their death rates. The same thing when you look at obesity class one, not the same number, but the same general outcome. For most of the studies, there's no difference in death rates between obesity uh, and normal weight. Um, so you're just not seeing these big differences. The only time you really see the differences are people at the very highest levels of obesity, obesity class three and higher. Um, and this is just a small percent of people, right? It's like 5% of people. At At lower weights than that, it's not, you don't see this strong effect. And I think... Well, there's lots of reasons for that. I would I would also add another thing, actually, which is that when you look at the relationship between obesity and any health outcome, not just deaf, you are by definition looking at correlational research where you can't really say anything about what causes what. And because of that, that opens the door for a lot of alternative explanations, a lot of confounds. So um, if you find a link... For all you know, that link can be explained by differences between obese and non-obese people in some other area. So, for example, obese people exercise less than non-obese people. Okay, we already know that exercise affects lifespan, right? So the differences could be explained by exercise. And yet the blame is always instantly and immediately tossed on weight right off the bat. 
Um, and exercise isn't the only difference between obese and non-obese people that could be partly explaining any health differences you might see between them. Um, you, you can uh, Some other differences are levels of wealth. Uh, wealth is highly, highly uh, correlated with health outcomes. And in general, you see obese people have less wealth than non-obese people. Um, the same thing um, with how often they make use of the medical system to get like preventative health screenings um, or care like that. Obese people do that less often than non-obese people. That could explain part of any health differences you find. Um, even, you know, I mean, there's so many possibilities, even, you know, the amount of sugar that people eat. If obese people eat more sugar than non-obese, sugar has all these links to health problems. You covered that on this very show recently. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So there's so many potential confounds. And just to uh, let our listeners know, I think your numbers were exactly right. I have the book in front of me. And, and, and uh, 93% of the studies overall, there was, you know, the risk ratio equaled one and 87% um, in obesity class one, uh, the risk again is, is one and so forth. So uh, that was really surprising to me when I read that, of course, because, you know, I have it very much ingrained in my head that, that obesity is going to shorten your lifespan. Um, but certainly there's a, a lot of evidence that uh, people who are obese are at higher risk of certain diseases. And, you know, the yes, ones that come to mind absolutely. immediately are diabetes and cancer and so forth. Um, so Cancer? No, not cancer. Diabetes, yes. Yes. And okay. potentially certain forms of cardiovascular diseases. Okay. But then you, and then like three paragraphs later, you make... An, an even more shocking statement that nearly had me falling off my chair, which is the obesity paradox. So tell us about that. Oh, so, okay. So the obesity paradox, you see for a bunch of diseases, even if obese people are more likely to get them, they tend to have better outcomes than non-obese people. Um, and there's speculation about why that is, but I don't think um, there's any clear understanding of why that is, except for diseases that lead to what they call wasting, diseases that as you get sicker, you get thinner and thinner. It's possible, you know, if you start with more weight, you can, um, you know, you can handle that more. Your body can bounce back from that or handle it better. Yeah. And th this is even true for diseases that seem to be linked to obesity, like cardiovascular diseases and diabetes. So you're actually better off being obese if you're going to get diabetes in terms of your prognosis, is, is what the paradox seems to be implying. Yeah, that well, that's a, like a slightly stronger way of saying it than I feel completely comfortable with. But that is basically what those are showing, you know, better, slightly better outcomes. And, you know, as, as you mentioned, like, we don't know, or scientists don't know why this is. It's just something that is maybe talked about in scientific conferences, but has never really, you know, gotten a lot of coverage in the media. Yeah, it's, it's been noticed and report and not reported on in the media, but it's been um, reported on in the scientific literature, certainly. So let's talk a little bit now about how people should 
or can achieve a weight that is in the lower end of their set range, uh, as you call it. Right. And, you know, we, we've already mentioned that exercise has some positive uh, outcomes in terms of lifespan and so forth. So instead of eating less, should we just exercise more? Is that, is that the answer? Um, well, it depends on the goal. Exercise will improve your health. Exercise, if you do it, of course, um, will make you healthier. The thing that I think um, surprises or confuses people is that when people think about how exercise can improve your health, they generally think it improves your health because it makes you thinner. But that's actually not true. Exercise improves your health whether or not it makes you thinner. And I think that's very telling on what the real culprit is in poor health, right? If doing exercise can make you healthier even without changing your weight, weight is not the issue, right? The issue is is fitness. So exercise is, so to get back to what you were asking about, exercise is one important strategy for being healthy, and exercise will make you healthier no matter what you weigh. So exercise is, is just a good strategy for being healthy. It might not make you thin the way we all expect exercise to make us thin. I mean, it will it will help, but I feel like the results of exercise that we've all been um, promised are exaggerated in terms of weight. I think it helps you lose weight, but not as much as you think. And I feel like people notice this. Like I know personally, I've often wondered, like when I start a new exercise program or something, I often think, am I doing this wrong? Because I would expect to be like losing a ton of weight and looking, you know, like a marathon runner or something. But instead, I just look like me, but a little more toned. And, you know, (laughs) it's not as uh, potent in the weight loss area as people think. But that's okay, because I don't think we need to lose weight to you know, to look like a marathon runner or a model or whatever it is. I don't think that should be the goal. So let's talk some some strategies. Yes, let's definitely talk strategies. So the goal is to reach your leanest livable weight. What I mean by that is a weight that's at the low end of your set weight range so that you don't set your body into this biological starvation mode. Okay, so if you get below that set range, your body is going to do all those biological changes I mentioned earlier to bump you back into it. Okay, so the goal is to be at the low end of your set range so you don't have to battle biology. Okay, so how can you do that? Well, it's much easier to get there than it is to get way below. So strategies, couple types. So one kind of category of strategies is putting obstacles between yourself and tempting food. And obstacles, it's surprising how well they work. And the reason they work, I think, is – and I talk about myself here – is I think because most of us human folks are lazy. So an obstacle can stop us. So let me give you an example um, from research from the Netherlands. Um, They showed that if you have a bowl of M&Ms on the table right by you, you'll eat a lot. Of course you will. If you put that bowl of M&Ms across the room, now there's an obstacle between you and the M&Ms, right? You have to stop what you're doing. You have to get off your chair. You have to walk five feet across the room. Okay, that's 
that's a pretty big obstacle, actually. And that actually um, reduces the amount of M&Ms people eat by a lot. Okay, but here's the even more amazing thing. Take that same bowl of M&Ms, put it on the same table that you're sitting at, except instead of right by your hand, put it two feet across the table. So put it so that you have to extend your arm to get it. You have to sort of, oh, radio, not ideal for this demo I'm doing here alone in this (laughs) studio here. Um, If you have to just extend your arm and just slightly reach out, you eat just as few M&Ms as if it's across the room. Okay, so small obstacles actually matter. Now, is this obstacle going to keep you from eating any M&Ms? No, but that, I would argue, is not the goal. The goal is to eat a reasonable amount of M&Ms. I think it's going a little far to say you can never have, you know, whatever it is that you most want. Um, So, you know, this kind of strategy, putting in place an obstacle, you know, it'll help you eat a little bit less. And if you do that in all different areas and with all different, you know, situations, that should add up to a nice, reasonable amount less. Um, So that's one kind of strategy. I mean, similar to that is just making sure there isn't tempting food near you. So given what what I was saying about willpower, all of these strategies are basically designed to help you eat less, but no matter how bad your willpower is, okay, they don't really need willpower. So the clear don't need willpower strategy is to make sure there's not tempting food near you. Make sure you don't have it in your house or... You know, for me, I have to carefully choose the route I drive to work so I don't go right by my favorite bakery because I am I am weak to it. If I drive by it, I'm popping in. Or another thing that I do in terms of the keeping temptation away is that I schedule my meetings on a given day so that my lunch break is too short to go out to a restaurant. In restaurants, people eat Uh, much more and much uh, more unhealthy than left to their own devices of what they cook at home. So if I make my uh, lunch break really short, I can't go to a restaurant. I am stuck with that healthy lunch that I packed in the morning when I wasn't hungry at all and when I had really good intentions about eating healthily. So I'm stuck with it. So this is just making sure temptation isn't there. And in the morning, of course, your your self-control resources are are full. <laughs> yeah, right, so, right. Yeah. You're at your strongest in the morning. That's a yeah. good point. And also, you know, I, I, I loved this image of, uh, of of Steve, your husband, uh, chopping up and preparing all of the vegetables from your farm box the minute it gets home. Yes. Which I think is <laughs> another great idea is that, you know, not just get things out of sight and put up obstacles to tempting food, but remove the obstacles from the healthy food. Absolutely. And that I actually think is more effective than anything. So let's let's talk about vegetables, shall we? Vegetables yes, please. <laughs> the most important thing for all of us to be eating are vegetables. Even more important than fruit. Okay, vegetables. Um the problem is vegetables have so many obstacles uh to get over. Obstacles in terms of how they taste. Many vegetables are bitter. There's obstacles just in terms of preparing them. They're high-maintenance food. 
you have to clean them, you have to scrape them. And at least for me, I don't particularly like most vegetables raw. You know, like the real stuff, like carrots or beans. I, I, I broccoli. Please, God, stop giving kids raw broccoli. Wait, you know, ruin them forever. For raw broccoli is the worst. Cook the stuff. Um, little tirade. Sorry, cook the broccoli, people. Um, so here's another obstacle to eating a vegetable, and this is really. Um, my favorite strategy that I talk about in the book and the one that I think works the best, uh, the main obstacle to eating a vegetable for many of us, maybe not everyone, and if you're one of these people, just shush. Okay, but for most of us, the main obstacle to eating a vegetable is that we don't like them as much as the other stuff. Okay, so the vegetable is on our plate in competition with all the stuff we like better. That's a problem. That's an obstacle to eating the vegetable. You're not going to choose it from your plate. You're not going to choose it first. Maybe by the time you eat the other foods, you don't even really want it anymore. You're not hungry anymore. So you're much less likely to eat it. So um, this strategy, I call it get alone with a vegetable, okay, or veggies first. And it's easy as this, just Put the vegetable in a competition it actually can win. And as far as I can tell, the only competition a vegetable can routinely win is the competition between a vegetable and nothing. And so in this strategy, you're having the vegetable before you put any other food on your plate or even on your table, frankly. It should really be the only thing there when you eat it. So make your salad, sit down and eat it, and then go and you know get the rest of the stuff. Um, so that's a really easy thing for people to do in their daily life. We actually tested this in school cafeterias with kids. Um, just before they went into the cafeteria to get their whole tray of food, we gave them just a little cup of baby carrots or a little cup of broccoli, even raw broccoli. We go, ah, why? Um, and just using this strategy, five times as many kids ate vegetables than on a normal day. Um, and the amount they ate was also similarly increased. And I'll say one more thing about veggies is I had um, the students in my freshman seminar last fall record what they ate for three weeks. The first week, I just said, record what you eat. And at the beginning of the second week, I taught them the veggies first strategy. I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to eat a vegetable at the beginning of lunch and dinner before you get the rest of your food. These were you know, college students eating in the college cafeteria. I didn't say try to eat more vegetables or try to eat less of something else or try to eat fewer calories. I just said, eat the vegetable first. And they did that for two weeks. And what we found is that they significantly increased the amount of servings of vegetables they ate. Maybe that's not so surprising. That is specifically, you know, what they were doing by eating it first, I guess. But the kind of more exciting part is that they ate fewer calories over, over that time. So without even trying to reduce their calories – they ate fewer just by eating the vegetable first. It seems that it probably replaced something else that would have been, you know, more caloric or worse for them in some way. 
So that's mm-hmm. my favorite strategy. And I, I do think that, you know, you've you've eliminated fights in parent and child interactions uh, just through this one piece of advice, because I tried it, you know, with my 15 month old this <laughs> week and it was the first time he ate. You know, I did cook the broccoli, but it was the first time he actually ate the broccoli because his choice was broccoli or nothing. Yeah, it's the <laughs> um, only then, hope. You know, he, he ate it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm so uh, but glad. Before I was putting, yeah, the broccoli next to, you know, the other more appetizing foods. He did get the more appetizing food afterwards and he ate that too. Um, but anyway, so so I want to thank you for uh, <laughs> you know, teaching my child <laughs> to eat vegetables. Wow. Well, I'm happy to help. And let me say I have no other advice for preventing fights between parents and children. That's it. <laughs> I got nothing. I need some expert to uh, offer that. Well, we'll have to save that for another show. But thank you for being on Inquiring Minds, Tracy Mann. Thanks for having me. This has been so fun. Great interview, Indre. And the thing that's still resonating with me that I'm having a hard time believing, and not so much that diets don't work. I can come around to the fact that that doesn't work. But the idea that the willpower of somebody that's overweight Uh, can actually be greater than that of somebody that's thin. That runs contrary to everything that I feel like I've been conditioned to think on this topic. You know, and I I almost feel like I can finally breathe a sigh of relief because I'm one of these people that, you know, I actually have to really watch what I eat. And I can't indulge. And I I see like the results of indulging, you know, very quickly. And I don't think that I have necessarily less willpower than some of my peers who, you know, maybe just don't, you know, maybe they don't eat the same things or whatever. But I've always felt that it's not about willpower. It's more about um, sort of being able to set up your life that you're not tempted as much. I mean, I think, some, you know, you see some people and they put a plate of really yummy looking food in front of them. And do you ever have the experience where like they just kind of pick at it, but they don't eat it? Whereas like I'm the kind of person that's like trying to do everything I can to prevent myself from like wolfing it all down immediately. Yeah, I watch what I eat. I watch myself eat it all, the entire <laughs> plate of whatever. Uh, but I find this a little depressing that I can't just flick a switch and say, oh, I'm a little bit overweight and I'm just going to really concentrate, work hard, and I'm going to lose that weight and it'll stay off. But I think you can. And I think what Tracy's saying is that don't try to do it using food. How you flip that switch, for example, is you get rid of the things that tempt you. So you put obstacles up in front of you, between you and the tempting food, which I think is what's interesting is like just putting the M&Ms out of reach will make you eat fewer M&Ms. Like that's a pretty small it change. Was pretty, uh, it was pretty funny to me because it was almost like think of yourself as a 10-year-old child and then treat yourself that way when it comes to the food. So put the M&Ms a little bit out of reach and like maybe maybe don't buy the extra large bag of Skittles so you tempt yourself with them. And yeah, I it's it's funny and I'm sure it's really effective. Uh, but in some level, I, it saddens me that I can't just do it on my own. But, you know, I think it's, we have to be realistic. And, you know, she, she quotes another really great study. I think it was from Google in New York, uh, where all they did is they put the M&Ms in opaque jars instead of glass jars. And that like reduced the amount of M&Ms people ate by like 
millions, which is shocking, right? But the other thing is that, you know, I think she's exactly right that how do you lose the weight? You exercise so that you change the metabolic set point so that you have a better muscle to, you know, fat ratio. And you said that right at the top of the show, you know, how is it that you try to, you know, keep keep your body image and weight in check and so forth is by exercising. And, you know, turns out you're right. I will go home tonight and take a critical look at my environment because I, I think I don't think about that uh, enough when I think about the food I eat is how like our environment is set up around food. I think that's going to be a, a wonderfully terrible exercise for me tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so if you see a despondent Twitter feed for me tomorrow morning, I think you know why. Well, you know, it's funny. My husband about a year ago asked me if, if I wanted to keep chocolate or candy in the house that I had to put it in a lockbox and not show him where the key was. And I always thought that was like totally just showed he had no willpower and it was totally silly. And he's obviously been totally vindicated. So tonight, all of the chocolate goes into the lockbox. And now I'll give the key to my toddler and we'll never see it again. Well, he'll probably eat it. So well, it'll show up somewhere. That's true. Maybe tomorrow morning. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash podcast, And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, CrossFit exercise tips, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And once again, this episode is sponsored by Privlo. You carved your own path to success, so why can't you get a mortgage? Privlo is a new kind of mortgage lender that knows everyone's finances don't fit into a neat little box. They take a holistic view of your finances to see if you qualify for a mortgage. To apply, go to privlo.com slash podcast and fill out a simple online form. You'll have a decision in hours. That's privlo.com slash podcast. Privlo, get home. NMLS ID 1076413. Inquiring Minds is produced by transcranial direct current stimulation expert Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre This. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.